Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And today we are doing episode 187 of the Internet of Things podcast, and it's going to be amazing. We're going to talk about some brand new smart glasses from the former makers of the Mayo armband. Qualcomm wants to put more Madame A-powered Bluetooth earbuds into the world. Google Home Hub reviews are out. We've got the launch of a new chip company that is going to do amazing things for low-powered sensors, plus whole segment on privacy. Just so much to talk about there. And we have a solution for people who don't want a camera in their bathroom, but they want to check for falls. Our guest this week is going to be Hugo Fines, who is CEO of Electric Imp. We're going to be talking about IoT security and what's going on with cellular connectivity that's popping up on every platform out there. And we have a message from this week's sponsor, Cognizant. So, big show, lots to talk about. Let's get it started with a message from another one of our sponsors, Auklet. Keep your IoT fleet growing and trade in the days of remoting into your customers' devices to identify and resolve bugs. Upgrade to Auklet in minutes and let its edge-first, problem-solving software do that heavy lifting for you. Auklet automatically finds performance issues, then tracks them from release to release. Collecting all the intel you need to rapidly identify root causes for the errors plaguing you and your customers. Register for free today at auklet.io. That's A-U-K-L-E-T dot I-O. Okay, Kevin, I'm sick today, so who knows what's going to happen on this show. It feels like anything could happen, but let's kick it off with North. This was surprising. This happened super fast. We talked, I believe, last week about the maker of the Mayo armband, which was a gesture-based armband, deciding to kill that and start something new. But we had no idea what the new thing is. And now we do. The company that made the Mayo armband, Thalmic Labs, has changed its name. It is now known as North, which kind of makes sense because they're from Canada. And it now has launched a new product called Focals. And Kevin, What are Focals? Well, Focals are glasses coming from North, and this is good because now they have three more pivot points if they want to change. They could rename as East, South, or West if this doesn't work out. Focals, they're smart glasses. They are not cheap at $999. You will be able to get them in a North store. They're building one in Brooklyn, New York right now. Still under construction. Of course they are. Of course they are. So soon you'll be able to go to Brooklyn and get measured up because you do have to get kind of scanned. Your head has to be scanned for proper fit. But what's different about these glasses, say, than Google Glass, for example, which I still have, don't use them. There's no camera here or anything like that. These look like Right? They look like the glasses that I wear today, just kind of hipster looking glasses. And to the right side of the glasses, hidden from anybody who is looking at you, is a small projector. And what that projector does is it bounces information off of a spot on the lens right onto your retina. <laughs> oh, that sounds like fun. And that's this is not the first product to do that. I forget who, maybe it's Intel has a similar technology. Intel does. They started a smart glasses unit called Vaunt and then promptly shut it down. Oh, I was going to say perhaps North is using the Intel technology, but they are. apparently They're not. They're using Qualcomm technology. Really interesting. All right. So what can you do with these things for a thousand bucks? Honestly, you can't do much, 
but you can get some information, which I think is actually a good thing. I, I'm all about context, giving me the right information in the right place at the right time and making it so that it's not disruptive. So if I'm having a conversation, I don't want to be like looking down at my phone every five seconds for new information. You won't have to with focals. They're 300 by 300 pixels of a viewing area. It's 15 degree viewing area. So it's not a very big viewing area. And you can view messages. You can send automated responses to messages. You can call an Uber. You can also get turn by turn directions, view your calendar and check the weather. And I presume more functionality will come to these. But the point is, these are not highly intensive things that it's giving you or letting you do. Well, Mm -hmm. what I thought was really cool, because I'm crazy, is you can actually see information like a text or get your turn-by-turn directions, but you can also then talk to Madam A and say, respond to Charlie, you know, and Charlie, I'm running late. So I actually thought that was, not only are you getting basically a tiny personalized screen, you can also interact with it. Yes, I was actually surprised to see the Madam A integration, quite honestly. And I think that's really smart rather than North creating their whole own special interface or assistant or anything like that. It just makes sense to integrate with something that's good and already exists. I thought you were going to say that you were really intrigued by the little accessory that comes with it. Did you see the loop? I did not. Oh, I did see the loop. Yes, that is really cool. Yes, loop is like a plastic ring with a joystick button. It looks like a regular smart ring that you might, you know, find, you know, maybe from Motive or Motive. somebody like that. Yes, Motive, who just added an NFC authentication chip to theirs, but that's all another story. But you can use the little joystick on the ring to swipe through the interface on your glasses. So it's not like you have to, again, with Google Glass, it's not like you have to touch the glasses to do anything. You know, I had to constantly swipe the side of my head and I think I put a dent in my hairline there by doing that so much. So this is really, really cool. Madam A integration also makes sense for another reason. Amazon actually was a lead investor in the Series B funding for North. Yes. Back when it was Thalmic. (laughs) Ah, yes. Yes. So these look pretty interesting to me. I don't have a thousand dollars to get this. I don't think I would per se, not in its current state because I wear a smartwatch and that generally does the same stuff plus more, but I like where they're going. And I would do it if they had. So here's a lot of people are like, oh God, a thousand dollars. That's crazy for glasses. I'm going to out myself right now. I don't buy a lot of jewelry, but I do spend a crazy amount of money on just glasses because I love like really unique and cool frames. And sometimes those are more expensive. So while I have spent a thousand dollars on a pair of frames for my glasses, they look awesome. They have actually, they're big sunglasses. They have Swarovski crystals in them. It's ridiculous. But these are not those glasses. These do not look as cool as I would want them to look for $1,000. So that's just me. And I think that's because they want to appeal to a wide audience. You know, these are pretty generic looking hipster doofus glasses like I wear. I like that they're hipster doofus glasses. I like that. All right. But, But there's another reason real quick, just that I could not get these even if I wanted to. They do obviously work with prescription lenses if you want, but they don't work with bifocals, which I have progressive lenses, so that that might work okay with these. However, they can only handle prescriptions between plus two and minus four diopters. And I'm well beyond that in both eyes, unfortunately. So it's not even an option for me. So it's not for old or blind people. Got it. Did you just call me old Um, or blind and blind? Both, actually, Both. yes. <laughs> You'd be right, yes. I'm like, hey, I might have bifocals soon too. Or actually, I'm getting progressive lenses for the first time in just a Ooh. few weeks. Good luck getting used to that. The first day is might make you nauseous. I'll be seasick. Okay, so 
related, but not exactly. So we mentioned that Qualcomm's chips are in these glasses. These are not the chips that are in there, but Qualcomm has launched a brand new reference design for smart audio headsets. And this is worth noting because I really think we're getting to this point where we're going to have that interface from her, right? The movie her, where you're you're like, you've got your phone in your pocket and it's super smart, but you also have a relatively smart headset that talks to you and you interact with. You actually, I feel like I just saw an ad for this for some other Madam A powered headsets. So Qualcomm has created a reference design for its QCC5100 series Bluetooth audio chip. Yay! It's for Android phones, obviously. You put the Madam A app on the phone and you pair it to these earbuds and you toggle Madam A with a simple push of the button. And they actually have decent quality features for music listening as well. So they've got active noise cancellation. They use the Qualcomm aptX codec for high definition audio and Qualcomm's true wireless stereo. I'm not saying that's any better than what Bose or Sony or Apple use, but you know these are not just an assistant in your ear, not just a hearable. There you go. They don't actually have the hearable functions yet that I would like to see, but maybe we'll get there. It's so much computing power, you guys. So much. It's funny you mentioned the Her movie because I've seen it probably 20 times. I love it. Do you know that I cannot get my wife and daughter to watch it because they think it's creepy? They will not watch that movie. Huh. Yep. I will not watch The Haunting of Hill House. But Well, neither would I, but that's <laughs> creepy on purpose. This is their interpretation of her as creepy. I think, and I think it's the pants. They probably see the pants and they're like, oof, I'm not watching that. I bought those pants. I'm going to be him for Halloween. Um, no, I'm kidding about that, but I'm worried because we're going to this hearables future and Not they may have to accept it. They, they better get on board. That's all I'm going to say. Ooh, we're going to talk about something along those lines in a little bit. Remember creepy, you guys. But mm-hmm. now, moving on. Well, maybe not. I don't know. The Google Home Hub reviews are out and people think it's pretty good. Yeah. And I read all the reviews. They're obviously the device is cheaper, so that's a plus. But you get a better experience on the larger smart displays in general. Yes, they cost more, so you're paying for that. The sound quality on the Google Home Hub is not up to par with those as well. And, you know, I still, I don't know. I just can't get over the size of it. And you know what? Listen, it's not for me, and that's fine. There are plenty of other people who are fine with a little home interface and a photo frame that's a seven-inch screen, no problem. I just like the additional feature of a bigger screen for my YouTube TV and videos and whatnot. Fair. Totally fair. But a photo frame right now is about 79 to to 100 bucks. So you could send people like your kid pictures and get this for like a family member if you thought, I don't know. It doesn't have a camera, so it's kind of less creepy. Uh, again. Yeah, it does actually take Duo calls, though. I just found this out the other day. I thought you couldn't use Google Duo on this because it did not have a camera. Google says it supports Duo calls that are voice only. Oh, yeah. So this actually might be great for like a grandparent or someone out there in the world. Yeah. If you just they, People won't be able to see you on the other end of the call, but that's okay. That might be a bonus for a lot of people. Who knows? It depends. My For my friends, yes. They're probably very happy about that. All right. And Google Home Hub features have started rolling out to smart displays. I have not tested it on mine. It started yesterday, I believe. 
And Kevin has not tested it on his, but... Yeah. Well, I tried to force the firmware update by resetting the hub and it didn't do anything. So what we're talking about is all of the features that Google demoed on the Google Home Hub this month at the Made by Google event are trickling down to the other smart displays, which makes sense. So the Lenovo that you and I have, Stacey, the smart display is getting it. The JBL is getting it. And this will add the slide down for your whole home interface feature to allow you to control things by touch a little bit easier, which I love that feature. But And this is another reason why I probably wouldn't get a home hub, because if you were just getting it for that feature, you're going to get it on the, on the better hardware anyway. All right. Well, hopefully we will get that soon. I will say that I did enable Madame May's new whisper mode, and it was super easy. I just started whispering to her and she said, I think you're whispering to me. Would you like me to whisper back or something along those lines? And I said, yes. And then poof, it happened. This is notable, one, because, hey, whisper mode's pretty useful, but two, I had this whole voice interaction with Madam A, and that's historically something I probably would have done in the app. So, woo! It's subtle. It's great that you can actually enable this by voice. It's, that's yeah. a smart use of the microphones. So, yay! If you're listening and you're on the Madam A team, someone did actually ask us, They're like, hey, I'm hard of hearing. Is there a way for it to recognize my voice? Which, yes, there is. And when it hears me, it just speaks up a little louder for me. And I thought- Right, just for that person. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that is a brilliant idea. So, Madam A team folk or the Google team folk, I'm actually not fussy. Go for that. It's a useful use case. I like it. Unless they're whispering and then don't shout really loudly. All right. Let's talk more about Amazon. Amazon is pitching immigrations, customs, enforcement- on using its recognition, face recognition cloud service to track immigration. This is unsettling. It's related to the use of the face recognition service by police officers, and now they're just bringing it to ICE, which currently is a super controversial agency for a lot of reasons. We don't get into politics much, but you know, I can say that ICE is one of the agencies behind separating families from their children at the border, and a lot of people think that's a problem. So Microsoft, Salesforce, and other tech companies have been called into question for allowing their technology to be used by this agency in what many people feel is kind of, I'm just going to say it, it's the pursuit of evil. You shouldn't separate families from their children. This should not be a controversial position. So, And just to be clear, this is not a done deal yet. Yes. This this has been a pitch and I guess demos, it's still under consideration. So it may not happen. Without again getting too deep into the politics, I think what we need are the right policies in place first, and then look at whatever tools are necessary to help support those policies. So I'm not saying I'm all for this by any means, but you know, to me, this is putting the cart before the horse. Yes. Basically, this is allowing for things like mass surveillance. And when you run the images through, it will recognize people. We don't have any rules about this today. The- and it's, not, it's also not foolproof. No, no, it is not. That's, that's You might be recognized as a escaped convict when obviously you are not. And it's worth saying that we are more concerned about dark people, people who are brown, people who are black coming in. And those are actually the people who these facial recognition algorithms have the biggest problem with. So a lot of things to think about here, most of them kind of dystopian. And along that note, let's talk about privacy and the Internet of Things, because we, we've we talked about this a lot. We think that in the U.S. we're about to get some privacy regulations. I think that is good. As we are leading up to drafting some kind of legislation, getting something implemented, we're seeing a lot of companies come out talking about it, none more so 
than Apple, which has constantly said that it keeps data private. And you might argue that that actually hurts it in its ability to create great AI-based experiences. But it's also something that it is definitely trying to pitch as a differentiator between Amazon and Google. So Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, gave a speech recently in Europe where he basically said that when companies are misusing, quote, deeply personal data, he called it being weaponized against us with military efficiency. He called it surveillance. And the entire speech was, those are strong words coming from a CEO Mm -hmm. of a tech company, basically. Yeah, and he's all in favor and, and in praise of the new GDPR regulations in the EU, obviously. I see his point, and when we've talked about privacy in the past, and, and we're all for it. I also wonder, and you kind of alluded to it, you know, is this perhaps why the AI in the iOS world is not up to snuff with Google and Amazon in terms of personal information helpfulness, I guess is probably the best word, as well as HomeKit not having the launch velocity that the other platforms have. It's almost like Apple has backed itself into a corner in these areas to try and improve them without sacrificing privacy, which is a great goal, but it comes at the cost of products that are less useful. And it's really unclear. So there's a lot of reasons that Apple may be perceived as being more behind in AI. One is For a long time, it didn't let researchers talk about what they were doing. And a lot of the data science community is very open and they want to publish research and Apple does not want that to happen. So part of it may just be it's not attracting people who want to share what they're doing with the world. The other aspect is definitely related to privacy. There are, though, things to think about with this. And I think we might be veering too far into the innovation is awesome. Innovation at all costs is awesome in this particular realm because advertise i mean there's kind of conflicting things there's the idea that customization ai can lead to awesome customization and a better user experience but up until now the web has been built on using ai for better marketing and those are two very contradictory aims you're either going to sell the user or you're going to sell the user on something and historically we've sold the user and It's unclear, actually, even if the user wants these better products, right? And that's kind of where we are at this moment. And I'll give you an example of something that kind of ties into this. Last month, GM's Director of Global Digital Information gave a presentation to the Association of National Advertisers. In it, he described the company gathering data from 90,000 GM owners in LA and Chicago for three months last year. These people were not aware of this happening. Basically, it listened in to what people were listening to, radio stations, satellite, etc. And it took that, tied it to vehicle data and location data, and basically was packaging this up for advertisers. Yeah. I, <laughs> there is so much fear right now. Like Whenever I talk to somebody who doesn't have an Echo or a Google device in their home, they're usually concerned about it listening in. Here we have this actually happening. And what the scariest part of the presentation, I think, at least to me, was that the GM executive said this, and this is a quote, we sampled the behavior every minute just because we could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not good. And just to tie these two things together and elaborate something else some more on what you said, you're right. Innovation for the sake of innovation is not the answer. And people sometimes fail to understand that when you innovate and build new technologies, that allows you to increase your innovation and 
build newer technologies. So the rate of change in innovation is increasing. What's not increasing is the level of privacy security that we have. The the two need to be in lockstep for this market. Otherwise, you're going to have, well, you're going to have what we have today. You're going to have devices and device makers that are doing things like this because they can. Right. And just to drive this home, because by gosh, we're going to just call this the dystopian episode, Sidewalk Labs, which is Alphabet's company building a smarter city on Toronto's waterfront area, one of the advisors Anne Kavukian, who is a privacy expert, she actually resigned last week as an advisor to Sidewalk Labs because she didn't like that Sidewalk Labs, when it released its privacy and digital governance proposals, and we actually featured those in the newsletter last week, they decided that they could not make all personal data de-identified at the source. And what that means is all of your city public data that's coming from you as you walk around the city will still be associated with you. They did talk about how people could use that data. And when people use that data, they need to make it clear what they're doing with it. And they've talked about creating a civil trust to monitor that data. But they did not say that it had to be taken away from you. And part of the problem here is when you create these type of smart platforms, you obviously open them up to third parties. And one of the issues is you know at least what Sidewalk Labs, the Alphabet company, is saying is, yeah, we're committed to de-identifying data, but we can't control what the third parties do. You can see how this could play out negatively for people. So take, for example, the recent selling of people's wireless data by the carriers to third-party data brokers, who then turned around and sold that data to law enforcement agencies. So then they actually had access to like individuals' movements which is kind of creepy because you know we have laws to protect how police can get that information. They just kind of sidestepped right around it just by going to the carriers, that third party. Now the carriers said they'd stop doing that, but you know these are <laughs> you have to rely on someone to figure this out and then shame the company and then they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, we'll stop." Yeah, it's always after the fact. So all of those stories taken together, I'm going to say it, they make me feel dirty. They make me feel really uncertain about the world that we're trying to build and the conversations we're having about our connected products, how we use the data from those connected projects, and our monetization plans. So I'm going to be like, if I had to claim a big story for the coming year, which we don't really do those kind of things, that's going to be a huge story next year. And And a couple episodes ago, we talked about how we're getting the smart home ready for normal people. And I believe that is truly happening. We need to have those conversations before everyone starts putting all of this crazy stuff in their home. So this is me calling out to everyone to think about this, to talk about this, to start figuring out how we want to handle this. And maybe it is. Maybe it's like, hey, I don't need this in my life. It's not providing me enough value. I don't know. Okay, that's enough on that. Let's talk about something... Uh, I don't know. Is it more creepy? Is it less creepy? Today, everything looks creepy. This is the Wallabot. This is a sensor you can put on a wall. They think it's good for your bathroom. And what it is, is it detects falls. It's a $249 device. And you. it doesn't use a camera. It uses radio waves. So it's tracking. Basically, it's not like, it's kind of like radar or sonar. <laughs> it's basically creating not images, but information about what a fall looks like 
through and it will work through a shower curtain. It will work through all of this sort of thin layers of materials. And basically it'll say, hey, this data pattern looks like what it looks like when someone falls in the shower or when someone falls stepping out of the tub. And it will call an emergency personnel. It is Wi-Fi only, not cellular. It doesn't have a subscription fee, probably because it's Wi-Fi only. And if you're concerned about this as a problem, it might be something you're interested in looking at. Yeah. I mean, it's another way to help the aging population or anybody who trips in their bathroom, whatever. And it doesn't seem too invasive to me because it's not like using a camera. Because it's using Wi-Fi, it's obviously voice over IP, which emergency services aren't going to know your location through that. However, I would assume that you set your home location in an app and that just provides that information to the emergency services. So that way you don't have to tell them where you are. It's not like you're going to carry this thing around and you're always moving. So that's good. You know, for the right audience, I think it's probably a good product. Yeah. I'm kind of interested as someone who falls a lot. I'm coming to you this week with a broken toe. Not because I fell, but that's okay. I do fall. Anyway, so let's move on to our final story for this week, which is a couple weeks back, probably months ago, actually, the New York Times did an awesome story talking about how smart home devices can be used against people who are victims of abuse. So how people could be controlled by the connected devices in their home. So maybe their husband installs connected locks and locks them outside the house. Or maybe a wife uses a camera to monitor the husband and they don't know about it. All of these things, super creepy. And there wasn't a lot that we could do. We talked about a couple things that you could do, but really it's it's a tough problem to solve. Kevin talked about how he always checks with his wife and daughter before installing things in the home. I talk about giving my husband admin access so they have you know, access to this. But the Wirecutter did a story talking about other things that you can do. They're good suggestions in that they help. They don't help the issue. Like if you're not prepared to leave the situation or you still live with your abuser, these are not going to really help you tremendously. But It's a start. So they give instructions on how to log into your router and see what other devices are on the network. They talk about how to reset devices and call the manufacturers. The the two-factor authentication suggestion is awesome. I'm very big into two-factor authentication for all of my online accounts, as well as my devices. Nobody can log in, for example, to my Chromebook if they don't have the special USB key, for example. So I'd like to see more smart home companies during the setup process offer two-factor authentication because that could completely lock somebody out from changing settings on you without your knowledge. Of course, that could be used both ways. Agreed. But yes. Agreed. And another idea was to disable remote access. You can avoid applications that track and store location history, turn off geofencing on devices. You know, so again, this kind of puts you in back, but we are talking about surveillance in a lot of these devices and, you know, it can be used against you. So I'll put a link to that for everyone who is interested in checking that out. And now I'm surprised. Wait a second. I'm surprised that you skipped over one of the most interesting, exciting chip stories of the week. Oh my God. I didn't talk about it. I know. That's my point. You guys, I'm terrible. This is what happens when I have a cold and a broken toe. Okay. She was so excited before the show about this. I was. Okay. There is a new chip company out there called Atmosic. It launched this week. And here's what makes it cool. I mean, any new chip company is automatically cool with me, right? I'm just like, yeah, bring on the silicon because I'm a big nerd. But this is a chip designed to solve the battery problems with connected sensors and low power devices out there in the IoT. 
Because my God, if we're going to put a trillion sensors anywhere, or even 50 billion sensors, we can't be changing the batteries all the time. So at Mosic, what they've done is they've created a really tiny Bluetooth module. And this Bluetooth chip is notable because it's designed to do some really advanced things on the sleep and wake mode. So that's good, right? The way it listens for data packets is slightly different and more power efficient. But the most exciting aspect about it is it harvests RF energy. So basically, this doesn't need to be powered by a battery. It can be powered by harvesting wireless signals. And you have to be kind of close to things for this to work, but this is not inductive power. It gathers energy from the RF signals. So basically, any radio waves out there, and this is actually radio powers other things. So wireless power, like we talk about with the Qi standard, that is actually RF power as well, but it's sitting directly on top of something. And so it can power things that require more power, like a cell phone. Because if you send too much energy through these RF waves to power stuff, you end up basically microwaving someone. So you cannot send massive quantities of power wirelessly over the air, but you can send tiny amounts. And that's basically what the sensor does. It's basically trickle charging all the time. So I love this. I love the design. I am very excited to see this come out into the world. It will not be out into the world in volume until 2019. And then we probably won't see devices at the earliest until the holidays of 2019. And probably more likely we'll see it in 2020. But very exciting. Yeah, this is interesting for so many reasons. And the application of this, obviously, you think sensors right away because they generally have low power requirements to begin with. But they're saying there are multiple applications here that we could be using this for, such as wearables, asset trackers, beacons, remotes, keyboards, mice. So there's there's a lot of potential here in terms of what we could see this in. Yes. Now, what you will need for this kind of network, you're going to need kind of a mesh situation because you cannot be too far away and still gain the power. So you're going to have like your phone cannot trickle charge this by talking to it if your phone is downstairs, if the sensor is upstairs, for example. Yeah. I wonder though what the range is. So like if I'm walking around with a wearable and I've got my phone with me, you know, would it be able to harvest some energy? Could it possibly get some from the cellular networks that are around? I don't know all the frequencies that they're using to get that, you know, electromagnetic energy. Well, Kevin, I can answer some of this. So it is about 10 feet. That's kind of the optimal range that you should be in. So, eh, I mean, that's not terrible, but it's also... No, so my phone would always be within 10 feet of something I'm wearing, for example, if I'm carrying my phone as well. But obviously, I'm almost always more than 10 feet away from a cell tower. And I'm certainly not going to stand under that just to recharge something. So still very interesting what they could do with this. Yes. Thanks for reminding me about that, Kevin, because I was so eager to get to our voicemail, the IoT podcast hotline that I forgot about that. And it's really a cool story. So yay. Now let's go to the IoT podcast hotline, which is brought to you by Schlage. With a variety of stylish and secure electronic locks to choose from, smarter homes start with Schlage. You can learn more at schlage.com slash IoT. And we are giving away a free Schlage Sense smart deadbolt and Wi-Fi adapter to our listeners. All you have to do to enter to win is call us at 512-623-7424. Ask us a question. We may answer it and you are automatically entered to win. So we do our next drawing on October 31st at midnight Eastern time. So call us before then and you'll be in the drawing. 
This week's voicemail is from Isaac, and he has a question, actually, about his Schlagsense lock. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Stacey. My name is Isaac. I'm from Colorado. My call is actually about the Schlagsense lock. You've probably seen on the web that ever since iOS 12 was released, we can no longer control the Schlagsense locks remotely. Schlagsense were actually my favorite locks. I've been using them for years, and I have two in my house. The other day, I almost had guests locked out of my house because I couldn't add keys remotely as I was traveling back home from San Francisco. So I was hoping to ask if you guys know more from Schlag directly from them, if they have an appetite to fix the issue, and if not, what other locks that are HomeKit compatible would you recommend to replace the Schlag Sense with? That's it. Probably not going to be selected to be on the air because of uh, <laughs> complaining about Schlag Sense a little bit, but I was hoping you might be able to help me. Thank you. Oh, Isaac, we do not let our sponsors interfere with our editorial coverage. We would never do that because all of our sponsors actually really want the IoT to work out. And so they really want to solve these issues. In this case, you are not alone. Schlage has acknowledged that this is an issue that they're dealing with. It's also an issue that August locks and even some light bulbs that are Bluetooth-based have faced. Schlage has given us an official statement. They acknowledge that this is an issue. People are experiencing remote connectivity trouble with HomeKit, and they are currently working with Apple to identify and resolve the issue in a timely fashion. They do want to stress that customers can use their access codes to unlock the lock, and you can manage the lock using the Schlagsense app or the Apple Home app if it is in Bluetooth range. You just can't do it remotely from the Home app. Now, this is probably still super inconvenient. People hate this. They hate having this problem with light bulbs, and they hate having this problem with other lock manufacturers. The issue is the update to iOS 12. It appears that something about that update broke something in the HomeKit Bluetooth implementation. The challenge that a lot of these companies are dealing with here is that they don't always have full access to beta versions that might break the locks. And so they are working with Apple. This is something that, that does happen, and it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, the, the challenge here for Apple is they're completely changing the OS version. This is a major release of iOS, iOS 12. And sure, you know, you've got unit testing, regression testing, etc. You've got beta testers. I beta test iOS 12. I did for a while before it came out live. But there are just so many moving parts, and you know, a fix or an addition may go back and break something. In this case, perhaps it's something in the Bluetooth stack or who knows what. You're never going to catch it all, unfortunately. So I don't, I'm not trying to give Apple a pass, but I, I mean, I used to manage a QA software testing team just at one corporation and it's a challenge. You know, anytime that you have code changes such as this, especially when they're massive. So I hope that it gets fixed, you know, for all of the manufacturers that are affected because it's obviously not just Schlage and we're kind of sucking wind as, you know, early adopters and IoT people until that happens. So hopefully, you know, Apple certainly knows about the issue. So my guess is we'll see it fixed much sooner rather than later. And we're just going to be inconvenienced until it happens. And the plus side is this sort of thing will probably prompt everyone to look at how they're evaluating software updates or OS updates. So this voicemail came in actually almost two weeks ago now, but it's still not solved the most recent update as of Wednesday morning when we recorded this from Schlage is, quote, Apple continues to work on finding the root cause. They are working daily with our and other companies' teams that are impacted. 
you can tell that that's an official statement because they use the word impacted. So yeah. And that's the first thing in finding the solution is to replicate the problem. So Apple needs to do that first, then that should help them determine what the issue is, then fix it, test the fixes, make sure the fixes don't break anything else anywhere in iOS 12, and then push it out to everybody at that point so that all these locks now work the way they used to. It's going to take time. It's just going to take time. And the good thing is, as you said, I mean, they should now have a test case going forward to retest all the lock functionality going forward with each new iOS update. So hopefully this does not happen again. Yes. Something else might happen because, hey, it's a whole new world out there, you guys. All right. Thanks, Isaac, for a good question. Thanks, Schlage, for talking to us. Apple, feel free to give us a call. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for talking to me this week about all of this. Guys, stay tuned for our guest, Hugo Fines, the CEO of Electric Imp. He's going to be talking about how a device made by a bankrupt company is still working for us today. And you'll hear from our sponsor, Cognizant. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone, we are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Cognizant, and I have Frank Anthony Sami, Cognizant's global leader of the IoT. Frank, we have covered a lot of ground in our previous conversations. We talked about how it's not easy for companies to build IoT solutions, but how you guys helped a bunch of your customers in retail and manufacturing. Now, tell us today how Cognizant is taking it a step further by using a human-centric approach to building these IoT solutions. Well, as you know, IoT applications are changing our personal lives in so many ways. And because of this, customers demand more in the enterprise world as well. The speed and scale of the coming transformation is massive and Cognizant is helping build it. But there's also a challenge that comes with rapid technology innovation. Some companies try to solve the problem by leading with a technology-first approach. They design new technologies without fully understanding what problem they're trying to solve and what we as humans, as customers, factory workers, service technicians, want and need. That is why we believe in a human-first approach to solve these problems, followed by the technology. That is a big challenge. What do you recommend to your clients? What we recommend to our customers is that before we go solve a problem with a technology-first approach, we look at what people really need. Take, for example, a car manufacturer. Today, we can get all kinds of data from cars. We can have so many different features at the disposal of the driver. But the question really is, does a driver need so many features? Are 100 features better than 10 well-crafted features? We don't think so. So one of the things that we work with our customers in this example is to understand what people really need by observing the users and then layer what kind of technology interventions can make that experience for a driver most impactful. And how does Cognizant do that? The way we look at these problems is to rely on key principles of ethnographic research to learn not just what people say they want. For example, in this case, the way a driver might answer a question or a survey about what they want in a car is very different from what they actually want. That is established by observing, and that is why the principles of ethnographic research help us there. We help companies layer this qualitative understanding on what customers really want on top of big data for improved outcomes and higher adoption rates. For the IoT to work for people, we need to keep human needs at the forefront. Your team sounds like they're doing a lot of great things. What is the outlook for IoT? What is possible with IoT is already being experienced in our personal lives with Alexa, Nest, and Roomba. These new digital experiences will continue to grow 
and it's just getting started in the industrial world which is tremendous potential to drive unprecedented efficiencies transform business models or drive new revenues cognizant can help you get started and where can our listeners go to find out more about cognizant you can go to cognizant.com/iot and download our new paper the internet of us Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host Stacy Higginbotham and today's guest is Hugo Fines, who is the CEO of Electric Imp. Hello Hugo, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Oh, I am just fantastic and I am excited because we are going to talk this week about one of my favorite products for the IoT of all time, the Quirky Eggminder. <laughs> but before we get to that, let me give you a chance to tell everybody what Electric Imp is. So Electric Imp is a connectivity platform. We provide security and mobility for devices in the field, allowing our customers to build secure, easily integrated, long-lasting devices for the IoT to deliver the data and control wherever it needs to be. Which brings us back to my favorite product, the Quirky Eggminder. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about business models and about security and we've floated ideas like, "Hey, we should have an expiration date for connected items because by golly, after a certain period of time, you may not want to support it if you're a manufacturer, but as a consumer, you need to know that your device is not going to be supported and get regular security updates so you can possibly, you know, take it offline." And you go, "You've been thinking about this probably from the beginning talk to me about when you were developing electric imp kind of how you were thinking about security for connected devices and where all that came from so i mean going way back i mean back to the before iot type stuff back in the late 90s i was working with mp3 players i had a startup which did the first in car mp3 player actually which was an embedded linux device kind of bought by a lot of geeks but after you know we got acquired by rio and made a lot of consumer mp3 players and actually this making consumer devices was something i did for like sort of 5 years in that sense and you know, mp3 players were almost the ultimate disposable consumer device you remember sort of every year there was a much better one and the leaps and bounds they got better in terms of capacity and everything like that and features was huge and so you know you develop them as a development team you'd work on a product and there was really you never did firmware updates after all the bugs were out generally you were on to the next product and the whole development team would move and really this is kind of a lot of iot products are built by very similar development teams and similar company structures where a company is they'll bring out a new product they'll finish all the software on it they'll get it all working they'll ship it and the chances of them even actually being capable of producing a software update for this maybe in 5 years time are very low just simply it's not necessarily there's no will it's there isn't a budget there isn't scheduling there's the engineers may absolutely desperately want to patch say a tls stack issue or a heart bleed type vulnerability but unless they actually get given qa resources and you know engineering time and money to do this it's not going to happen and that's really a, a structural thing with consumer product companies is that maintenance is not something they've ever had to think about and so they don't it's not like building a product for the military where you know you have to plan for sort of 20 years in advance or whatever at least and so that was very much on my mind with IoT and you know in the forming of electric imp one of the things was is how do you make that model work how can you make devices remain secure even if the manufacturer is not involved and that really drove the the whole architecture behind electric imp and the way we do the separation of our operating system and the application even on a tiny device like the eggminder Okay, and that brings us to the quirky eggminder. So, talk to me about that and the main steps that you take to kind of keep this operational 
even though the company behind the Quirky Egg Miner is now defunct. So one of the interesting things here is, I mean, Quirky obviously had some quirky products. You know, it was a crowdsource innovation and so on. So obviously some people decided that an egg tray, connected egg tray, if people don't know what it is, it's a, it'll tell you how many eggs you do or do not have in your fridge from anywhere in the world via the power of IoT. A very marginally useful product, possibly. Well, wait, um, wait, because I had one. And by golly. I you it was, knew how many eggs you had. I knew how many eggs. And I actually thought it, I didn't think it was like eminently useful. But when they pushed this out as an idea, they said it cost like $15 or so. And at that price, I was like, that is an excellent gift, like a quirky kitchen gadget kind of gift for Christmas or a holiday, right? So I was like, yay! But then when it came out, it was $50, which was ridiculous because no one was going to spend that kind of money, which probably gets into... a lot of eggs. Yeah. Gets into the expense of IoT when you're like, what? It really costs this much? But moving back, now now that I've defended my beloved quirky egg minder... If I still had it today connected to my same Wi-Fi network, it would actually still work, correct? Yeah, it should do. I believe essentially if you bought a new one, you can't provision it now. They turn off the ability to to provision ones. But obviously the app software was done by Wink, which is very much still around, even though Quirky isn't. But people who still had devices online, I believe that they're still working, yes. But one of the things here is that essentially, you know, when they decided the application software was done and it could successfully detect the number of eggs it had in there, Quirky could move on. And since that point, which I think was probably they got to sort of feature complete on the software sometime in 2013, so sort of five years ago, there has not been an application update pushed to the device. However, the device has had, I think probably in that time, seven or eight OS updates. It's been patched for, you know, it's gone from TLS 1.0 to TLS 1.2. It now has forward secrecy. It now has various route of trust improvements. It has all these bits and pieces. Good stuff to be done. And no one, Quirky has, the lights haven't even been on. Quirky doesn't exist as a company anymore. Well, wait, um, we should explain the, to people what TLS is, because if you don't know, uh, it's pretty important. Essentially, TLS is the gold standard, one of the only standards in security. And it's really what you should be using to connect anything either DTLS or TLS. It's essentially sort of the hallmark of good security. Got it. So now we're familiar with that. So you guys, basically Quirk is defunct and there's these existing products out there. There's TLS updates and all kinds of other updates. And so how does that work? So, I mean, essentially it works because our architecture allows us to upgrade the operating system underneath the application. Now that's not an alien concept. You know, most people They'll have an OS update on their phone or their laptop or whatever, you know, Windows and so on. And the operating system vendor is responsible for keeping the operating system secure. And you know, it's not when you upgrade your operating system, you have to retest all your applications. There's a lot of testing done by the operating system vendor to make sure that when they push out an update, it doesn't break everything. That concept has never really been pulled all the way down to IoT. You know, when we say IoT, we're talking about things with 100K of RAM. But that's what our system has done from the very beginning, is that we've had this separation between application and an operating system. And essentially, that allows us, with huge amounts of testing, to be able to update the operating system without the involvement of the device vendor. And so this is one way of thinking about securing IoT devices and then keeping them operational for a long, 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 long time. From an economic perspective, you guys have to update the OS because you're providing the service to many, 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 many different customers. So everyone gets the benefit of that, correct? 
Sure. And I mean, that kind of works for the cost as well, because it means the huge cost of building and testing and maintaining the operating system is amortized over every customer and every customer runs the same OS. So there's a huge amount of work that goes into that to make sure that it's, you know, stable and bug free. And we do a whole lot of other stuff about, you know, remote diagnostics and crash monitoring and things like that to ensure that. So, actually, you know, we, we get telemetry back from all the devices in the field. And if something is going weird or whatever, or when we're testing a new release, we can dig into problems very deeply and find the root cause and fix them. You know, we kind of, that's the job we do for our customers is that we look after their devices for them and ensure that they're going to stay online and stay secure. Okay, so let's tie this to some big advances that have happened. I shouldn't say big advances, some advances in IoT security that have happened in the last year or so. Microsoft has a product called Azure Sphere, which is a connection between the hardware and the OS layer. And then it's actually also tied back into the cloud. You guys have a cloud component as well. But I'm trying to think because this is a little bit of a different model. So yeah, there's, it's actually pretty interesting. So obviously, we've been doing this, we've been shipping secure devices since 2012 on existing commodity hardware. So you know, using the best features of the existing chips to provide this secure environment and to provide this separation. So Microsoft Sphere, Azure Sphere, is essentially Microsoft's take on this. They have custom hardware to do this, to provide the isolation and provide the operating system separation. And you know, on a device level, it provides many of the same assurances that our one does. You know, we have remote monitoring, deployment, and so on security update without changing the application, all these type of things. So it's good. These are good things to have. However, if you look at the comparison between the two, the DevCam platform is much more application-oriented. It's about solving problems in IoT holistically. So security is one of the problems, sure. Good deployment and development tools is another. And the other part is how you do data integration in the cloud. So the Azure Sphere stuff really does nothing with the data integration. It's traditional IoT and I'm going to have to run, you know, put my certificates on the device. I'm going to have to run my standard, whatever it's MQTT or AMQP or HTTP stuff. You're still going to have to run all that stuff on the device like usual and load that down and have this big heavyweight stack on the device side to deal with that stuff. Whereas on Electric Imp, every device in the field has a VM in the cloud. The VM in the cloud deals with data integration, which allows a huge amount of flexibility. It gives you better battery life in the field, gives you lower latency generally, gives you, you know, a lot of good things which actually are needed to ship IoT applications. It's very pragmatic. It's like, okay, well, you need middleware. There's going to be glue. You need to speak to the SAP database and pull a custom record out before sending the data to, you know, Google IoT or, or Azure IoT. And actually, generally, a lot of IoT systems, when they ship, end up with, it's all this beautiful stuff, which is architected nicely, and then some Python scripts on the side to tie stuff together for all the edge cases. With the electric imp system, the education edge cases get to be part of the actual standard system you ship. So it scales and it just carries on working. So our customers really love that about it because it's very you know, inclusive. It lets you ship one product and have it maintained. Okay, so that's a lot about security. And now let's move over to how we get these things to talk to the internet and to each other. Because in the last few years... I know that you guys launched with a Wi-Fi board. There were some other, there were lots of other board companies. They kind of filtered out over time, but it was mostly Wi-Fi, maybe Bluetooth. And now we're starting to see a lot of cellular modules come out. And I think that's, it's indicative of something, (laughs) but I'm not sure what. I have my theories, but I'd love to talk to you since you guys recently launched a cellular capable board. Talk to me about why it is now the time for this. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of applications which, you know, are fine with sort of the traditional LAN and generally sort of wireless LAN type scenarios. You know, our product line has had in it for years dual band Wi-Fi and Ethernet as connectivity methods. But those are traditional things you find in offices and so on. Um, What we found is quite a few customers, even when their products are operating in office environments or environments where there are Wi-Fi, the problem is, is that the amount of talking to an IT support person you need to actually successfully deploy one of these devices to a customer site is expensive, not always productive. And so being able to just, you know, do an end run around the whole thing and just deploy cellular instead is actually a really viable solution for many applications. So it's not just traditionally what people thought of as M2M, which is like, oh, movable applications, very remote things. There's no internet, there's no broadband, there's no Wi-Fi, but a device needs connecting. And actually, a lot of the cellular devices we're shipping right now are going into environments where there is actually Wi-Fi. You're just not allowed to use it. So I think that the reason this is kind of perked up right now, there's, there's a few reasons, actually. One is we moved from 2G, 3G networks to LTE, and LTE is natively IP. And because of that, it actually has a lot more characteristics to make it much more like Wi-Fi in terms of it's very fast, very, very low latency, very fast to send data and receive data, can be pretty low power. So I think that's just one of the things there is actually... Just structurally, LT works a lot better for IoT, sending small volumes of data, being able to do it quickly, generally have low latency, responsive devices, and so on. You know, on 3G, typically, if you want to send data, you like to say, hey, I want to send this data. And then on the back end, it's actually still essentially a switched connection. So it will bring your data session up, which can take five or six seconds, which is why, remember, remember on the 3G phones, you like put a web address in, press go, and there's this pause where nothing seems to happen, and then the page arrives. That's actually the 3G data bearer connection coming up. And then after you hadn't used it for like five or 10 seconds, the carrier would tear that down so you could give it to someone else. And you know it was a very, very lumpy connection. It's not very satisfying. It's not saying stuff doesn't work, not saying data doesn't flow, but it's very unsatisfying to use and, and has power implications. So LT is better like that. The other thing is the sort of the IoT specific standards for LTE have come along. And one of the fastest one is LTE Cat 1, which is sort of a 10 megabit down thing. It's, it's of the same family as the LTE that your phone uses, but at the very lowest end. The good thing about that means it's supported worldwide. Just pretty much everywhere has LTE Cat 1. But there's also a couple of new LTE standards, LTM and NB-IoT which are designed to fill in real IoT applications. You're never going to see these on a phone, for example. But they're smaller, lower power, simpler and cheaper, and technically have better range and penetration due to the modulation schemes and so on they use. But it's really this, this has opened up. And I think one of the things that's actually pushed carriers to do this and has actually made a bit more of a frenzy about it now is that I think the carriers are desperately afraid of lower and Sigfox you know, eating their lunch on IoT devices and they're trying to ensure that they have an answer to that in the field so that uh, you know, if you're deploying smart city devices, you actually can pay the carriers some money as opposed to paying Sigfox some money instead. A couple things here. One, would you ever do a LoRa board or I guess probably not a Sigfox board, but... For us, particularly for me, I see the Internet of Things as, as things which are actually on IP networks. And now both LoRa and Sigfox are not IP networks. They're essentially, you know, sort of message-based networks. That's fine. There are definitely uses for that. But the bandwidth on those is so limited that it's actually very hard to do things like OTA firmware updates. So I don't see us doing a lower end device. Various of our customers use us as a gateway for various other things. You know, we have customers who have cellular to Zigbee, for example, so they can monitor Zigbee networks remotely. Okay. And what about module costs? This has been something that I've been following for a couple of years now, but even MBIOT modules are still pretty expensive. They're not at $5, which is where I think 
they really want them to be. I would like them to be even cheaper. I think they're at $5 asterisk, which is, is, you know, one of the problems there is it's still coming along. Really, the silicon at this point, there's very little stuff which is just NB-IoT silicon. Really, the sort of people are making the silicon, which is CAT-M and narrowband. So it's got the complexity of CAT-M, not just the narrowband stuff. But that stuff is coming. It will take a little while. But I think bear in mind that network rollout of these things is early right now. You know, several months ago, maybe about six months ago, I was chatting to some people and they were going like, oh, you know, AT&T have CATM launch. And I'm sure this has probably changed by now. But back then we're going, yes, and you can only have 100 devices per cell because it's only in testing right now. So, you know, it's all announced and there's a lot of fanfare about it. But the carriers realize that the actual product development won't really, no one's going to start product development until the network is up, but they're never going to ship in volume. There's generally a year at least delay. So there's all this noise before the actual stuff happens. And I think the part, the chip pricing and so on is coming down. So right now, you know, in some very high volume applications, we have customers who are deploying, you know, they can get CAT-M modules with 2G fallback for, you know, the, the 10-ish dollar mark, which is actually not bad for a cellular module. That, that's pretty good. And, you know, we have some new stuff coming, which allows customers to actually put those on their board and not pay a separate module cost. So really, really scalable to high volumes and with a lot of flexibility that allows people to build something within the budget that they need. Okay. And in line with costs, what about the costs associated with delivering service? I feel like we've seen a couple couple innovations here, like AT&T launched an LTE button that instead of charging you like on consumption, you just had X number of button presses. And it feels like for IoT... Subscription models aren't going to work for many products. For those products, they need some sort of, I guess, built-in model, kind of like they did with the original Kindle. So are you seeing carriers get to that point, or how are your customers looking at that problem? So I think one of the problems with cellular applications is that people have always seen this as several parts. There's like, well, there's the hardware, there's the software to run the application, there's the SIM and the connectivity and the carrier relationship. And all this stuff, and they're always moving pieces there. What we're trying to do is actually get rid of all of that and just go, like, here's the thing. You give it power, it will come online. The billing is very transparent and honest and so on. And to do that, we've had to become a layer between the carrier and the customer to just provide this really, really simple billing model and deployment model so people can actually get their stuff out quickly and easily. Okay. So I feel like we've talked a lot about two really important issues. One, security and making sure that devices stay secure, even if your company goes away, or maybe you don't want to deal with patching it anymore. And then also the issue of cellular connectivity and how we're trying to figure out the best way to pay for that. These are big things that from the consumer side, it may not make a whole lot of difference. But from the manufacturer side, it eases a lot of headaches. So with that, Hugo, I would love to hear your favorite current IoT device. What is it? Oh, okay. So the problem is, well, it's not a commercial device. We have various things in our office connected to Slack. So we have some speakers that I hid above our ceiling tiles and connected to PoE drops, which are next to our access points. And we can now play sound samples from the ceiling when certain things happen. So we actually have Arnold Schwarzenegger sound samples telling us at 4 p.m. We have a 4 p.m. planking thing where everyone in the office who is so inclined gets on the floor and planks for a few minutes, whatever. But we have Arnie going, get down, which comes out from these hidden speakers all above our ceiling tiles. It also does other things. Like if anyone mentions cookie, the cookie monster goes off. If anyone mentions chef, Swedish chef, as we use chef for our server deployments. So my favorite IoT device is actually some of the random things we have in our office connected to Slack. 
it's very single use, it's not very mass market thing, but the interaction with the real world through unconventional means, I mean, kind of like Siri and Alexa and so on have been, have opened up the voice interface to that. There are a whole of other interfaces where actually it's very convenient. You know, if I'm opening a parking barrier, hey, you need access to the right Slack channel, which must mean you're an employee. So fine, there's no access control apart from you're in the channel. Oh, and there's an audit trail. You can see people have opened the barrier. It's all kind of fun. And I think that's actually, this is a lot of the excitement around IoT. We still get excited about these type of things because, you know, it actually makes your life easier and it's nice. And fun. All right. I look forward to planking one day at 4 p.m. in your offices. Hugo, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Cool. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.